Scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Before we turn to the Word of God, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together. Lord God, help us to turn our hearts and our attention to you and hear what you will speak through the power of your Holy Spirit, that our affections might be shaped that we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we might be conformed to the image of your Son. For we pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Hear the word of God. If you put these things before the brothers... You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with the irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trust worthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have set hope, we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. When most of us think of the season of Lent, one of the things that probably immediately comes to mind is the spiritual discipline of fasting. And rightly so, historically speaking, since very early on in church history, the church would observe a season before Easter which was marked by prayer and fasting. There is record of church fathers like Athanasius and Augustine in the 4th century mentioning the 40-day period of fasting that preceded Easter. The 40 days of this season of Lent spent is pointing to the 40 days and nights that Jesus spent in the wilderness fasting and praying after his baptism. And it was during this time that Jesus faced temptations from Satan and he overcame them. So the church, following in the way of their Lord and Savior, practiced these spiritual disciplines of fasting and prayer together as they readied themselves to celebrate Easter. And so through the years, Lent has been associated with devotional practices. It's not uncommon, even still today, for this question to be asked during the season of Lent. What are you giving up? This question points to the devotional practice of fasting, and and it's not a bad thing. Uh, Fasting is one of the three devotional practices that Jesus mentioned in his Sermon on the Mount, where he laid out the practices and ethics of those who were citizens of his kingdom. But I fear that sometimes there is confusion about the purpose of the devotional practices. 
Despite popular belief, the point of fasting isn't to improve your physical health, although there can be health benefits, nor is it to demonstrate how righteous we are. This is what Jesus warned of in the Sermon on the Mount when he instructed his disciples to beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. But unfortunately, I'm sure that you have heard people, as I have, bragging about what they've given up during the season of Lent, as though the ultimate act of sacrifice is giving up chocolate or alcohol for 40 days. No offense to those of you who might be fasting from those things. Uh, My point isn't to to discourage you from this devotional practice, but rather to encourage us to understand the proper purpose and place of the devotional practices in the Christian life. So let me say up front that this sermon isn't going to be a how-to guide for any particular devotional practice. If if you want to know how to fast, how to pray, etc., then I or John or Scott would happily provide you with some resources. But what we're really after this morning is why we would practice any of the spiritual disciplines in the first place during Lent or at any time. And I hope that you will find that while Lent is marked by a focus on devotional practices, we as Christians should never be neglecting them. So if you haven't figured out from the title of my sermon or from the scripture reading, the true focus of my sermon is godliness which is sometimes referred to as Christian piety. Growth in godliness is, in fact, the goal of the devotional practices. The point of fasting isn't to grow skinny. It is to grow in godliness. And God's word through the Apostle Paul has something to say to us about cultivating godliness in our lives, which will provide for us a greater understanding of the purpose in place of the devotional practices in our lives. But before we look at this passage, I want to first define godliness or Christian piety. These words might seem intimidating to us. They seem like words which should be reserved for some special class of Christian, but they aren't, as we will see. John Calvin defines piety in this way. I call piety that reverence joined with love of God, which the knowledge of his benefit induces. Now, that's sort of a confusing way to say that our knowledge of God informs and leads to right attitudes toward God, which produces right conduct or doing what pleases him, which is piety. So our knowledge of God leads to love of God, which produces godly living. Jerry Bridges defines it more simply as an exercise or discipline that focuses upon God. An exercise or discipline that focuses upon God. And we could probably even more simply define it as God-centered devotion. God-centered devotion. And so piety isn't restricted to devotional practices, spiritual disciplines, as we might think of them, even as they are an important means by which we cultivate godliness in our lives, living a pious or godly life encompasses more than practicing spiritual disciplines. It encompasses all of life. As William Law stated, devotion signifies a life given 
or devoted to God. He is therefore the devout man who lives no longer to his own will or the way and spirit of the world, but to the sole will of God, who considers God in everything, who serves God in everything, who makes all the parts of his common life parts of piety by doing everything in the name of God and under such rules as are conformable to his glory. Law is articulating here what Scripture declares, to live is Christ. But that doesn't mean that anything and everything goes. There is actually a specific diet and exercise that law hints at, which cultivates true godliness in our lives. And we find that here in our passage from 1 Timothy 4. Paul here is giving young Timothy instruction on how to help his congregation in the face of false teaching. In the preceding verses, Paul had laid out a scathing attack against some false teachers who had been encouraging asceticism as a path to godliness. They were promoting severe forms of discipline in avoidance of earthly pleasures. They were forbidding marriage, requiring abstinence from foods, none of which God had forbidden or required. So Paul has instructed Timothy to recognize and reject these false paths to godliness. And now in the verses before us, he is providing instruction on what Timothy is to teach and how he is to live instead. And what Paul tells Timothy is this. If you put these things before the brothers, that is, if you teach the brothers to reject these distortions of religious thought and practice and receive with thanksgiving the good things that God has provided, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with the irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So Paul begins by telling Timothy to make sure that he is on a healthy spiritual diet. The false teachers had something to say about diet, so now too does Paul. Now, we know that there are foods and drink that are bad for our bodies. If you want to be physically healthy, then you shouldn't stuff yourself with sweets and foods loaded with the wrong type of fats. So we know that to eat lots of candy and fried foods and to drink lots of soda is bad for us. We also know or should know that it isn't good to starve ourselves either. God created us to need a variety of foods to receive all the nutrients we need to live. We need vitamins and minerals. We need protein and carbohydrates. We need ample amounts of water. So we mustn't just know what we need to avoid. We also know, need to know what we actually need to consume. And this is what Paul provides here in a spiritual sense. If we are to be what God has called us to be as his people, if we are to live holy lives, if we are to grow in godliness, then we have to have a healthy spiritual diet. So Paul shares with Timothy both what to consume and what to avoid. He begins by laying out what constitutes a healthy spiritual diet. 
instructing Timothy to be, as the ESV translates verse 6, trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. Now, we will notice that we have the the verb train again in verse 7. But if we were reading the Greek, we would notice that these are not the same words. The words in verse 6, translated as trained, is derived from a word which means to feed or nourish. So Paul is saying, here is what actually nourishes us in the Christian life. God's word and good doctrine. Paul points Timothy to the apostolic teaching. He is pointing him to the faith once delivered to the saints. He's pointing him to God's holy word. If we want to know how we are to live, if we want to know what devotional practices we should engage in and what these devotional practices should look like, then we must look to God's word and the faithful understanding of it. And this shouldn't be any real shock to us, right? If our piety begins with a knowledge of God, and this knowledge leads to a reverent awe of God and a deep love for God, and this love of God produces right conduct, a life which is pleasing to the Lord, then we have to start with God's word, where we not only find God's revelation of himself, but also his revelation of what right conduct looks like. God doesn't leave us on our own He doesn't leave us to our own devices to figure it out. We aren't left groping in the dark. We aren't left wondering what God is like or what sort of life God expects of us. John Calvin noted, And whoever have been endowed with true piety dare not fashion out of their own rashness any God for themselves. Rather, they seek from him the knowledge of the true God and conceive him just as he shows and declares himself to be. And Calvin also said, God has prescribed for us a way in which he will be glorified by us, namely piety, which consists in obedience, in the obedience of his word. He that exceeds these bounds does not go about to honor God, but rather to dishonor him. If we long to live godly lives, then we must spend plenty of time searching and seeking to understand God's word. Simply put, a good diet of God's word will make a good Christian. And just like a physical diet, if we stop eating things in our Uh, that our bodies need, then it will come with some serious consequences. If I stop eating things that give my body iron, then I will become anemic. If I stop eating things with vitamin D, then I will end up with bone problems. If I stop eating things with vitamin A, I'll end up with eye problems. These are issues of malnutrition. We can be seriously malnourished on God's word as well if we aren't spending time reading and studying it. And the consequences can be devastating because we end up inventing who God is and what he expects of us. And that will lead to one of two things. Either we will imagine God to be extremely harsh, which will lead us to extreme forms of self-discipline, or it will lead us to view God to be uncaring about sin, which will lead us to live in a way which presumes upon his grace. Either way, we will have an unhealthy view of God which will lead to ungodly living, either in legalism or in licentiousness. Generally, though, our problem isn't with a lack of access to good nutrition, physically speaking. 
Our, our issue is that we have poor nutrition from eating too much of the wrong foods. We end up with conditions like high cholesterol and, and blood pressure. So Paul also instructs Timothy and all the church with him concerning what to avoid. And Paul tells him to have nothing to do with the irreverent, silly myths. Another way to translate this is to avoid godless myths and old wives' tales. It's really what the Greek says. Any teaching that instructs us that our Christian duty is to do something other than what we've been instructed to do in God's word is irreverent because it is telling us that how we honor and please God is by a means not revealed by God himself. We've already established that God gets to tell us how we are to please him, not men. Therefore, we must be careful that what we are consuming is God's word and not other spiritual teachings. Uh, Paul is saying, in essence, that other spiritual teachings, which are in opposition to God's word, are unhealthy junk food that only clogs our spiritual arteries. And our practice should actually produce something as well. What is it that makes an old wives' tale? It's advice with practical steps that you can take to resolve some particular issue. I remember when Elizabeth was pregnant with Judah, who was still breached towards the end of the pregnancy, and we got desperate to have Judah flip to avoid a cesarean section. So we tried all sorts of old wives' tales. Uh, for instance, we went to a pool, and Elizabeth tried doing handstands in the water. So if you can imagine an eight-and-a-half-month pregnant woman doing handstands, it, it, it's supposed to work. It didn't. None of these things we tried work because the reality is that an old wives' tale is really just a superstition. It, it lacks any verifiable evidence to produce the effect you are seeking. Uh, Paul saw people who were doing things that not only lacked biblical warrant, but they also lacked any ability to reach the desired result. Our spiritual practices mustn't be marked by godless superstitions. And there are plenty out there. If we think about our modern culture, we are inundated with irreverent, silly myths. There are lots and lots of teachings out there which are providing unbiblical instruction for how to please God, which will never actually grow up Christians in godliness. In fact, they have the reverse effect. You don't become godly through ungodly means. So it wasn't just a problem in Paul's day. It's been a problem throughout history. And if we look at the Protestant Reformation, in fact, we find that this very thing was addressed. The Protestant Reformation, with its return to the centrality and sufficiency of Scripture as the only rule for life and faith, didn't just address the doctrine of justification. It also made a very, very important correction as it sought to return us as the church to God's word. And this was in the area of Christian piety. We see a tremendous focus on this in the writings of the Reformers, especially John Calvin. And what the Reformers sought to correct was the idea that Christian vocation belonged to clergy alone. In other words, you couldn't really live a true Christian life of piety unless you were a monk, a nun, or a priest. 
But in returning to God's word, it was revealed that piety isn't just for a special class of Christians. It didn't require some super ascetic lifestyle marked by extreme self-denial and an avoidance of any earthly pleasure, nor did it require perpetual solitude and isolation from all the temptations of the world. That isn't what God's word calls us to. Our, our image of piety shouldn't just simply be eyes upturned to heaven and folded hands. The word of God asserts, as it does here in 1 Timothy 4, that the Christian life is for everyone, is for everyone who calls himself or herself a Christian. In fact, John Calvin said this, Now the knowledge of God, as I understand it, is that by which we not only conceive that there is a God, but also grasp what befits us and is proper to his glory in fine, what is to our advantage to know of him. Indeed, now listen to this, indeed, we shall not say that, properly speaking, God is known where there is no religion or piety. In other words, if you truly know God, then you will live a life that is fitting to live in light of him. And if there is no life of piety, then chances are God is not known. Jesus said that we will know a tree by its fruit. No true piety, no true Christian. And that doesn't mean that through our godliness, we are somehow saved. That isn't it. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, as the Reformation affirmed. But our piety reveals that God's saving grace has taken hold of our lives. For when we come to faith in Christ, we are brought into union with Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. The ground of all godliness is our union with Jesus Christ. Paul said it earlier in 1 Timothy 3. Great indeed, we confessed, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So as one commentator notes, Jesus is the essence and the wellspring of godliness. He lived in godliness, and now the ascended Lord, he gives us godliness. Godliness is not external, but it is the inner power to live a godly life. The mystery of Christ makes godliness possible. Jesus strikes us with awe and then enables active obedience. But our union with Christ also means that we have been brought into relationship with God. It is a covenantal relationship. God brings us into relationship with himself and offers himself to us, and we, in turn, out of love for God, offer ourselves to him. Calvin understood this. It's on the back window as you leave the church. His motto, my heart I offer to thee, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. Total surrender of oneself to God by one who is gripped by God's love. It goes right back to what William Wall said about piety, being devotion to God with the entirety of our lives. Calvin said it this way, we are God's. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. 
We are God's. Let his wisdom and will therefore rule all of our actions. We are God's. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. That is the desire of all who are truly pious and will be the desire of every true believer. So we aren't simply trying to take the benefits God is giving. We are participating in relationship with him. We practice piety because it cultivates this relationship. So piety isn't something optional to the Christian life. It's essential. Our our covenantal relationship with God demands it of us. A a life of godliness isn't something only for a super-Christian. It is for all Christians. So through the Reformation, the biblical understanding of piety was recovered and set back into its correct place among all Christians and within the covenantal community. Scripture makes this clear and is the correct diet for cultivating godliness. So notice what Paul states next in verse 7 and on into verse 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. We must not only have a good diet, we need exercise too. This is exactly what Paul is saying here. The word Paul uses here in verse 7 for train is the same word for the training that athletes engage in. It is physical exercise. Anyone who tells you that you can be physically healthy simply by dieting is lying to you. The body needs exercise. Otherwise, your muscles grow weak and atrophy. It's a good and wonderful thing to take care of our bodies. Our bodies, after all, are temples of the living God. We should seek to live in ways that are healthy for our bodies. We should eat healthy foods in healthy proportions. We should seek to limit and avoid unhealthy things from entering our bodies. We should also get regular exercise. And in the same manner, how much more should you care for your soul? And this requires a healthy diet of scripture, as well as regular exercise through godly living, which Paul tells us holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. There are benefits of physical exercise. You look better, you feel better, you're stronger, you're more capable, you're healthier. Paul acknowledges these benefits. But here's the deal. Whatever physical gains you get in exercising your body, they will still not go beyond the grave. You can't take your muscles and your endurance into eternity. The gains you make in your spiritual life, however, will last into eternity. This is why Paul is so concerned with the pursuit of godliness. In his pastoral epistles, in his letters, focused on the practical life of the church, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, he uses the word godliness or piety 13 times. So in 13 chapters of scripture, he speaks of godliness 13 times. That's how important it is in the life of the believer. Jerry Bridges writes, when Paul wants to distill the essence of the Christian life into one brief paragraph. He focuses on godliness. So what Paul tells us is that our diet must be God's word, but we must seek to exercise ourselves in God's word. 
And this is where our devotional practices come into play. We are to seek to live to God's glory in every aspect of our lives, but God has given us through his word, specific ways in which to cultivate our relationship with him and to grow in godliness. We have disciplines like prayer and fasting, which are two of the three Jesus specifically mentions in the Sermon on the Mount. And just as an athlete has a goal in his training regiment, these disciplines have a specific goal. They are to grow us up in our reverence of God in our comprehension of the love of God, in our desire for the presence and fellowship of God. And ultimately, what they produce in us isn't just a reverent awe and love for God. They produce in us Christian character. Just as an athlete's training requires commitment and sacrifice, so too do these practices. This is why the Apostle Peter tells us to make every effort Make every effort to supplement your faith with godliness. We, we have to work at it. We, we have to commit ourselves to it. We, we have to practice it. We don't become godly by a lack of effort. One of the irreverent silly myths today is that once you proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior, you can do whatever you want. When Paul says to Timothy, train yourself for godliness, he's calling Timothy to total commitment, like that of an Olympic athlete. But it's worth noting here, before we conclude, that we have to be careful in our modern context with the devotional practices. We need to allow ourselves to be guided by Scripture in our practice of the spiritual disciplines. And one area of danger for us is that we live in a culture of expressive individualism. John touched on this this morning in Sunday school. If we're paying attention, then we see some ways that this might negatively influence us. The obvious way is in the popularization of the attitude of being spiritual but not religious. And what that really means is that I'm going to practice spirituality in any way I see fit, removed from the guidance and accountability of a faith community. Well, if you spend any time in Scripture, then you will discover that there is no Christian who is not inherently associated with the covenant community through union with Jesus Christ. Nor does Scripture give any of us license to create our own form of godliness. The Bible is not a choose-your-own-adventure. God actually specifies how we are to love and serve him. But the less obvious way that we might be influenced by individualism is that we don't see the importance of the faith community in the formation of godliness, even if we're engaged in the church. Again, the yous are really y'alls. Y'all fast, y'all pray, y'all worship. We see our devotional practices simply as our personal pursuit of godliness. But Paul speaks these words to Timothy, and they are for the formation of the community as a whole. Spiritual disciplines are to be practiced as individuals, but they are to be done in the context of the community. So what happens during Lent in our modern context is very strange in foreign to Scripture. Everyone's doing what they want. Fasting from different things or not at all all for different reasons, but mainly concerned with the formation of ourselves as individuals. This is what individual has, individualism has done to our devotional practices. 
And no longer is it a community fasting together with a common purpose which binds them together and grows them up into Jesus Christ. No longer is a community praying together with a common purpose. But true piety, true growth and godliness draws us out of isolation into the covenant community, into the life, work, and witness of the church. It's in the church that God has ordained that we are to grow in godliness through corporate worship. The preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, the offering of God, our heartfelt praise. This is why Calvin viewed the church as the nursery of piety. The church is our spiritual mother who educates us and nourishes us in godliness. It's through the church that the Holy Spirit works to edify us. We are called to grow in godliness together, to study God's word together, to pray together, to fast together, to worship together, to serve together. It doesn't discount personal piety, but it does mean that we shouldn't neglect the place of the community of faith and our cultivation of godliness. And at the core of the covenant community are families, parents, Your children's piety is your responsibility. We should be growing in godliness as family units. Psalm 103, the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him in his righteousness unto children's children. To such as keep his covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them. Parents, stop wanting your kids simply to be moral. Your desire should be that your children are godly. And you, if you want your children to be spiritually healthy, and make sure that you're feeding them a healthy diet of God's word, and then make sure you exercise them in that word. Pray together as a family, fast together as a family, serve together as a family, worship together as a family. Be committed to these things. Be intentional about these things, not just for a season all the time, for they have benefits not just for this life, but for the one to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that this would be a season in which we commit ourselves to you. Lord, not just until Easter, but for the entirety of our lives. Lord, help us to see the importance of our own personal piety. Help us to see the importance of the church community in developing godliness. And Lord, let us be committed to those things. And Lord, we pray that It would all be to your glory. That is our ultimate goal. So, Lord, grow us up, mature us in Christ, who is our head. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe?